Thanks, Randy. Obviously, we are starting a new series uh, throughout the book of Acts, so if you have your Bibles, be there uh, with us. We're going to go through all of Acts chapter 1 this morning, and uh, my goal is that we have been, uh, you know, we just finished our DNA series. We really went through that mission statement and those core values, and those were heavy things, so I'm hoping at least this first week is, is less heavy and more just fun and light and encouraging, lifting up, and your toes can take a break. Amen? All right, good deal. Uh, You know, in the past few years, it has become popular uh, to take a DNA sample from yourself. Uh, I don't know if that's spit or hair or how they do it, but and and to send it into a company who will run all these tests on it, determine your DNA, and then they learn all of these different things about you. You know, where do your people come from? Where do your ancestors come from? What part of the world? And you'll get different percentages of, of different parts of Europe or Africa or Asia or wherever. Uh, they'll, they'll show you what different diseases you might be prone to genetically, which no one really wants to know about, but you, know, you get to learn. And then, you know, they show you other things like, you know, the different foods uh, that genetically make you more fat, which could be helpful, but probably not because I want to keep eating them anyway. Oh, and, and you know, it tells you all sorts of other things. Um, you know, I've really always wanted to do it, and I haven't because it's a little expensive, but I've wanted to do it because I've always kind of wanted to know where kind of my lineage, where my people, where my ancestors come from. My grandmother always told when I asked her that question, she always said that our family was kind of like Heinz 57, that we got a little bit of everything in us. I was like, well, that's not really helpful. My most interesting family connection, uh, my great-grandmother on my mother's side told me about, uh, I got to know her for a long time. She lived in Louisville. I got to know her until I was probably 14, 15 years old. She told me that her great-grandmother, so my great-grandmother's great-grandmother, uh, was the sister of the outlaw Jesse James. So that may explain something to you. I don't know. But knowing your family history is interesting. Uh, you know, it, it can be fun. Like, I want to I do mine, and I really hope that my people come from Scotland uh, because I really want to be able to legitimately wear a kilt without being made fun of. I'll probably still get made fun of, but still. <laughs> But it is fascinating to know where we come from. It's fascinating to know, uh, you know, more about us because I think it reminds us that we come from something much bigger, something uh, much older than what we can just see right in front of us. It reminds us that we come from a long line of people, that we've got great, 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 great grandparents. And they had struggles, and they went through things. It reminds us that there's something bigger and older. And I think in the same way, the book of Acts actually serves as sort of a family history for us. It shows us uh, where this whole movement, this whole revolution started. It shows us the people who were involved and how it went from 12 guys huddled up in an upper room somewhere, and that they changed the whole known world. In history as we know it. The book of Acts serves us as a reminder that we are a part of something bigger and older. Something bigger and older than Fellowship Baptist Church in 2021 who is going to celebrate a 50-year anniversary next year. But 50 years really is not that long compared to uh, 2,000 years of family history that we have. That we are a part of something big and old like that. A part of this movement, this revolution that has happened. We're a part of something that will go on forever. And so my hope for us over the next, however long this series takes, I won't put a week on it, is for us to catch a glimpse of our 
family history, to see where we've come from, to see what we are really a part of, and for how that reality changes us when we see ourselves as a part of that thing. So we start in Acts chapter 1, and at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, the church doesn't exist. As you open the book of Acts, and you read the first verses, the church does not exist yet. But little by little, the disciples begin figuring everything out. They begin slowly over the course of chapters, establishing and building the church until we get to the end of Acts, and we'll see the church is thriving and advancing. So this morning, we will see really the beginnings of birth pains of the church preparing to be born. So Acts is written by Luke, the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he writes it to this guy named Theophilus. Uh, and, and so when Luke writes the Gospel of Luke to the same guy, he is describing the events of the life of Jesus. And now he's continuing kind of this uh, history by showing us what happened in the life of the early church. If you go back and read Luke's first letter, the Gospel of Luke, you will remember that Jesus, it ends with Jesus being crucified, resurrected, and then he is spending 40 days with his disciples and many other people teaching them and appearing to them. Well, Acts chapter 1 is picking up toward the end of that 40-day period. And I think a major theme of the chapter really is trust. The disciples finally learning to trust Jesus. Now, you would have thought that they would have trusted Jesus for a long time. They've been with the dude for three years. They thought they would have been trusting him for most of the time, but really they hadn't. You would have thought after seeing Jesus heal people, after seeing Jesus uh, raise people from the dead, that you'd say, I trust that guy. But really they didn't. Throughout Jesus' ministry, the disciples were always questioning him, right? Like, Jesus, do we really got to go through Samaria? Like those people, those people, they're dirty. We don't want to go through there. Uh, Jesus, why, we had this big crowd. Why did you start talking weird stuff about like, unless you eat your flesh and drink your blood, they can't have part with you, Jesus? Why, why did you say that and scared them all off? Uh, Jesus, why do you have to always be challenging the Pharisees and drawing all this unwanted attention to yourself? It's not going to end well. Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Everyone doesn't understand. Jesus, why must you wash our feet? You're not supposed to wash our feet. Don't wash my feet, Jesus. Jesus, why are you going to allow yourself to be arrested? Let us fight back. Can't we fight back? Look, I'll chop the dude's ear off. Why don't you put his ear back on? The disciples always thought that they understood Jesus and his mission and his purpose. But again and again and again, they are left dumbfounded and confused and realizing that they really don't know what's going on. And they're just along for the ride. They had been taught their whole life what the Messiah was to be like. From the time that they were uh, little boys, they were memorizing the Torah. They were memorizing the Old Testament, knowing what the, the scriptures promised the Messiah would be like. And they, from their understanding, believed that he was going to be this military leader with a sword in his fist, come to drive out the Romans who had occupied and controlled Israel for so long. They thought the Messiah would be like King David, come ready to raise an army and fight, like Mel Gibson and Braveheart with his face painted, and yelling, freedom, and we're all gonna go charging with it. But even after the crucifixion, Jesus was dead. They still didn't get it. It's not like they were waiting around the tomb like, all right, any day now, the dude's coming back. They weren't expecting a resurrection. They thought it was over. They thought the mission had failed. They'd given up. They were scrambling. But there was something 
about his resurrection. Something about Jesus raising himself from the dead that changes the disciples. And the disciples that you read about at the end of Luke are very different men from the disciples you read about in Acts chapter 1 and following. It's really after Acts chapter 1 we see the disciples as changed men who finally start to get it, who are finally seeing the bigger picture and are finally starting to trust Jesus and do what he tells them to do. The first thing I want you to see is that the disciples, they trust in their preparation. Verse 3 tells us that he presented, that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Catch that, many proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. There are two important things of preparation I want you to note here that Jesus is imparting to his disciples. One, he is teaching them about the kingdom of God. That's how verse three ends. He's teaching them about the kingdom of God, which is he is discipling them, right? He's preparing them, he's discipling them. Luke, the same author in the previous book, speaks of this training in more detail about how Jesus would walk with the disciples. He would just, like the disciples would be walking down the road and Jesus would like just teleport and just appear there and, and he would begin uh, to teach them something or reveal something to them. I think one of the most important examples comes from Luke 24, 27, and he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He went to them and he said, okay, guys, listen, you grew up and you thought you understood all of this and, you thought, and what it said about me, but I'm going to go through you with you book by book and show you how you really just, just completely missed, missed it and didn't get it. And he goes through and he shows them how Genesis and Exodus and even Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy and, and Ruth and, 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 and Sam, first thing, Sam and Chron, that every book and every story was pointing to him and what he had to come to do because they didn't get it. Really, it's like, you know, when we become, when, when someone becomes a Christian, we use the language from John 3 that Jesus talks about being born again. We, we talk about that. We talk that way. When you become a Christian, you've been born again. And I think there is a lot going on there. But one of the things is, I think it means literally you are having to learn again, learn anew everything. You have to retrain your mind and your heart. You have to retrain the way that you see and think about and interact with the world. You have to like relearn to walk again. That is what Jesus is doing with the disciples. He is taking everything he taught them over the last three years, and he is finally connecting the dots for them, showing them throughout the entire Old Testament how they messed it up, showing them who he really is. Jesus knows that the disciples have this massive mission ahead of them. And so he takes the time to prepare them, to disciple them. I think one of the reasons the, the disciples uh, uh, are here are, are obeying Jesus without question finally, and they're, uh, one of the reasons that they're so, we'll see that they so boldly just go into towns and, and preach the gospel and they get arrested and beat and they keep doing it is because when the resurrected guy who resurrects himself tells you to do something, when he takes the time to train you, you finally feel ready to take on the world, and you're going to listen and do what that guy says. And I think that kind of serves as a good reminder to us, because I have heard and made every excuse in the world of why not to obey Jesus, why not to listen to his commands, whether that is 
by sharing the gospel or obeying him in some other area of our life. Made every excuse. And I think when we make those excuses, we are like the disciples before the resurrection. We're like the disciples at the end of Luke who are still, you know, uh, doubting Jesus, still uh, even betraying him, denying him. When we don't obey and don't follow Jesus in every area of our life, we're like the untrained, uninformed, still missing it disciples. But you see, that's not really who we are. That's not actually who we are. We, we too are disciples, but we are post-resurrection disciples. We are Acts 29, which is not a chapter. We're, late, we're post-resurrection disciples. We've been trained. We know that Jesus did not stay dead, and that truth has changed our lives. Some, but we've, we've been trained by him. Like Many of us in this room have grown up in church. You have been to every VBS. You've served in VBS. You have, uh, you've gone to, you went to RAs and GAs, and you went to, uh, uh, what's that thing called when you race, who can get to the Bible drilling, who can get to the books the fastest? Y'all were part of WMUs and Sunday schools. Like, you went to youth group. You've listened to thousands of sermons and went to thousands of Bible studies. Many of you in this room have more training than someone who's been to, more hours of training than someone who's been to seminary. You have more knowledge and training than you realize, and you know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so we need to see ourselves as the kind of disciples who are after Acts chapter 1, not the Luke type of disciples, and we need to obey Jesus that way because that's who we are. Second thing I want you to see in this verse three is that Jesus provided proof that he was alive. Now, this is important. Remember, he said, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, uh, many proofs appearing to them during 40 days. See, Jesus knew that his mission would have all of his followers across the known world proclaiming the gospel and that the cornerstone, the centerpiece, the, the linchpin of the gospel was and is the resurrection. So if the disciples were going to go into all the world proclaiming and defending the truthfulness and legitimacy of the resurrection of Jesus, they needed plenty of proof that Jesus was actually alive, proof that they could use to convince other people. Because here's the reality, and this reality matters for even for us today. Everything about our faith hinges on the resurrection actually happening. Everything about Christianity, about our faith, hinges on the resurrection actually happening. Hear this. If the resurrection is false, if it didn't happen, if it was made up, then everything Jesus said and and everything Jesus claimed to be is also false. If the resurrection is not true, Jesus should not be trusted. He's not even a good teacher. He's not even a good moral leader. He's actually a liar, and we should forget about him and leave him to the pages of history. But if the resurrection is true, then it also stands to reason that everything Jesus said is also true. If the resurrection is true, then he is actually God in the flesh, 
He is the only way to connect to God. He's the only way to salvation. He's the exclusive way. If the, res- if the resurrection is true, then Jesus deserves not just our loyalty, but our worship, our adoration. He deserves our whole lives. So both the disciples then and us now need to not only believe for ourselves that the resurrection is true, we need to be able to show others that it is true as well. Jesus, knowing this, understanding what, his, what he was asking the disciples to do, reveals himself to them and many others with proof that he was actually alive. For example, when Thomas, remember, you know, we call him, he, Thomas makes one mistake, one slip up, and forever is known as doubting Thomas. Poor guy. But so Thomas is like, listen, unless I see the scars in his hands and touch a scar in his side, I will not believe he has been raised from the dead. And it's like he says that, and Jesus is like, boop, and he just appears. It's like, what? Where'd you come from? And and Jesus appears, and he's like, he's not mad. He's like, see the scars? And he takes his hand, and he places it on his side. And Thomas believes. It was important for Thomas to know that he knew, that he knew, that he knew Jesus was actually resurrected. The disciples They needed to see him. They needed to talk to him. And more than that, they needed to touch him. They needed to make sure that he wasn't just a ghost, wasn't a spirit, but that he was flesh and bone. It is really important that the disciples had firsthand account, that they were firsthand eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Because if not, there would be no legitimacy to the claim. Imagine for a minute that if our argument was, you know, well, we believe Jesus was raised from the dead, but like all of his followers never actually saw him. But they heard from a guy who heard from another guy who heard from his, you know, his wife's cousin that they saw him. And so, and the tomb was empty and there wasn't a body. So, you know, we believe he was resurrected. Like, I don't know. Like the claim becomes a little thinner, right? Like, I'm not sure I can believe that. I don't know. And even if we did, it'd be kind of really hard to convince other people, right? So Jesus knew how important it was for people to see. And so now, because of that, and because of some other things, we stand as people who don't believe in a resurrection because it's fitting or it helps our case. We believe in a resurrection, not by blind faith, but by a reasoned faith that all of the evidence points to. So, Five quick things, five quick evidences. The body was gone. It wasn't stolen because Roman guards were positioned at the tomb, and some fishermen guys and a tax collector ain't taking them Roman guards out. Two, uh, the women first discovered the resurrection of Jesus, and if the disciples were just making up a story, they would have never invented the idea that women found him at the tomb because a woman's word was not trusted at the time. And so uh, the only reason you would say women found him at the tomb was if it actually happened that way. Three, Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians. And he says, don't take my word for it. Some of them are still alive. Go ask them. They were eyewitnesses. Number four, the disciples went from these confused, on the run, scared uh, guys to boldly proclaiming the resurrection without fear of persecution. And even after they were arrested and beaten and sworn and, and, and in charge to stop, they continued preaching anyway. The, the kind of, it's like, only seeing the kind of miraculous resurrection would change them to act this way. Five, 
every one of the disciples went to their death, and 11 of them were put to death in brutal ways, such as Peter being crucified upside down, others being dragged through uh, the town by horses, others being boiled alive, boiled alive in oil. And none of them recanted the resurrection to save their own life, but all willingly gave it. And I don't know about you, but I'm not giving my life for a lie so that it wasn't true. See, the resurrection has more proof and legitimacy than many other historical facts we accept without question. The resurrection is the one historical fact that changes everything. And Jesus knew that his followers needed to know that they knew, that they knew, that they knew he was alive because that is the only thing that matters. The resurrection is the most important belief we have because if it falls, if it fails, so does everything else. So as the church begins to form and begins to grasp the reality of the resurrection, the church begins to take shape, the disciples are finally getting it, and therefore they are finally able to actually trust Jesus. And so the disciples are able to trust in this preparation that their Savior has given them. And now that Jesus has finished teaching, he's preparing them, he's about to leave. But before he goes, the disciples ask him a question in verse 6. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, that is not a crazy question. I mean, Jesus just came back from the dead. Like, now seems like a good a time as any to just, like, blow everything up and fix everything, right? Now, you, know, you just came back from the dead. It seems like now is a good time for you to restore Israel to its former glory. Because if you read the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to be this light to the nations. They were to be the ones, as promised to Abraham, that through Abraham's seed, Israel, they would bless the whole world. So, hey, Jesus, are you ready to restore Israel so we can bless the world? And Jesus gives them a gracious response. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, there's a practical thing to this. We can stop trying to guess when Jesus is going to return. He says, look, that ain't for you to know. So we can, we can, uh, we can stop, you know, tracking the blood moons. We can stop watching the news and wondering what's going on in Israel and, you know, if they're going to bomb the temple and whatever. Because the Father has set a time by his own authority. It's not for us to know. But Jesus doesn't just tell them that. He doesn't just say, sorry, guys, that's only for the big guy upstairs. He gives them a mission and a purpose. Verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But in this, in this commissioning, he's actually also answering their question. When will the kingdom be restored to Israel? He is saying the kingdom has been restored, is being restored, and will be restored as you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you proclaim the resurrection in Israel and to the ends of the earth. He's saying, you know, Israel was always supposed to be this light to the nations and the whole world was supposed to be blessed through them as promised to Abraham. But they're beginning to see that it, that's not going to happen through the geopolitical understanding of Israel. It was not going to happen through Israel as a nation but through 12 Israeli disciples proclaiming about an Israelite Messiah who would come 
for the whole world. And with that final word, Jesus, he's like, he tells him that, and he's out. He leaves. He ascends into heaven. And the disciples are like turkeys with their mouths open, looking up, just like, did he just leave? Is he really gone? And, and, the, and, and the, I don't know how long they're standing there, but they're standing there long enough that some angels got to show up and be like, yo, he gone. <laughs> what are you looking up there for? But then notice what happens immediately. The disciples obey Jesus' earlier command. He told them to remain in Jerusalem, and as soon as he ascends, they do exactly what he said. They return to Jerusalem, and they wait. And so here they are, this small group of guys whose leader was just resurrected a month ago, and he has left them for good. And all they know they're supposed to do is go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to do something, and then they're going to be witnesses in the whole world. Okay. But they trust Jesus. Finally, they trust him. And so they, though they don't fully understand, they obey. And that, that has some practical application for us, right? Like, Sometimes, or probably most often, when God calls us to do something, we don't understand it. We don't get it. What? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to say? But because we know who he is, and because we know he is faithful, even we don't fully understand, we obey. Because we trust that Jesus' way is always right. So the disciples, they obey Jesus' words, and they go back to Jerusalem, and they wait. But I want you to notice that that's not all they do. They actually take actions that Jesus did not explicitly tell them to do. I want you to see something. There is a difference between the revealed will of God and the secret will of God. See, the revealed will of God uh, was clear. Go to Jerusalem. Wait. Wait for the Spirit. They don't know how long. They're just going to go wait. And so they do that. But, they, but notice the other thing they do. Verse 14. They all together and one accord devoted themselves to prayer. They go. They go to the upper room. They go to Jerusalem. They wait. And they begin to pray. They begin to pray to determine how long to wait, what else they might should do. And they did so together in unity. In one accord. And after they prayed with, and they, with their collective wisdom, they determined that there was and something they needed to act upon. They determined that there was something else they needed to do. Even though Jesus did not explicitly say, go do this, through prayer and wisdom together, they uncovered the secret will of God. They uncovered what it is God wanted, needed them to do. They realized that while there was 120 people in this upper room who had been following Jesus, there were only 11 of the official disciples or apostles left. 11 eyewitnesses left that had been with Jesus from the very beginning until now. Only 11 because Judas had betrayed Jesus and now he has gone because he killed himself. And so they needed to replace Judas. They needed 12 disciples. But why? Why does it matter? Why do they need 12? Isn't that just a number? Because remember, it was to be Israel who was to be the light to the nations. It was to be Israel who the, was to bless the whole world. And if they were going to be the representation of Israel, there needed to be 12. Because Israel had 12 tribes. 
You see, it was by no accident that Jesus picked 12 men. It wasn't just like he ran out of cool people to pick. He picked 12 intentionally. And so the disciples needed to replace Judas, Judas so that the 12 men, again, could be the fulfillment of the Old Testament to be the light to the nations so that salvation would no longer be a Jewish thing, an Israel thing, but would be a thing for the whole world. So that Israel would bring salvation to the world. And so they find a couple of guys that, they, that had been, it's important, they find two guys that had been with them from the very beginning, who had been eyewitnesses to all that Jesus had done from the very beginning and had seen him raised from the dead. That was super important to replace Judas. And now, didn't they do something that probably wouldn't recommend doing when you make a decision, but they pick these two guys, they pray, and then they roll some dice. Like, <laughs> I feel like maybe y'all did that when you picked me as pastor. It's like, hey, you know. If it's a seven, we'll, we'll keep him, you know. Probably not the, that's probably one of those things that's descriptive. Probably not, it's not saying you should do this, but that's how they do it. And so they pray, God, you know their hearts? Let the dice fall on the one you want. And so they pick him. Here's the point. The disciples trusted Jesus. And they obeyed his exact words, but they also trusted their preparation, and the ability of Jesus to lead them through prayer even after he was gone. Here's the point for us. We all should know the revealed will of God. There are things we should be doing, and we don't need to be told to do them. We should just know them and obey them. Things like loving our neighbor, things like not gossiping, things like sharing the gospel, things like caring for widows and orphans and the oppressed, things like loving our enemies, things that God has revealed to us in his word. They are the revealed will of God. You do not need a special calling on your life to go share the gospel with a coworker that has already been called, uh, you've already been called to do that in God's word. You do not need a special call to love your neighbors. God has already called you to do that. That is his revealed will. But the secret will of God, the things that we need to do and figure out, is a little different. Should I marry this person? Should I go to that college or this one? Should I share the gospel with the person in this way or that way, in this manner or that manner? Should we hire that pastor? Clearly, y'all hadn't listened to this sermon yet and figured this out. Should our church do this ministry or that ministry? We only got enough resources to do one. Should we do this one or that one? The secret will of God does not need to remain foggy and unclear to us, but rather through prayer and unity with collective wisdom, we together can determine where God is leading. And so when anytime someone's trying to figure something out, here is the four steps I tell them to take. We're trying to figure out God's will for your life. One, does this Bible speak on the issue? So if, if, if you feel like, you know, I feel like God is calling me to, to murder my enemy, I can tell you he's not doing that. He's not leading you to do that because the Bible speaks on that issue and says don't do it. it, it uh, if the Bible, if you know, I just really feel led to leave my wife and, and, and go hook up with this other really, you know, young, attractive woman, I can tell you the Lord is not leading you to do that because the Bible addresses that issue. All right, so first, does, you know, what, what are you being led to do? Does the Bible speak to the issue? Man, I really feel led to go to the Ohio State University. OH, come on, let's go. I mean, I can get you to say that, but not amen. It's okay, whatever. But, but the Bible doesn't speak about Ohio State University. And so, okay, Bible doesn't speak about it. So we go to number two. Number two, pray about the decision and, and, decision and search your own heart. 
Okay, you know, Lord, do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do this? You're, you're praying, you're thinking, you're trying to discern God's will and kind of how is he prompting you, how is he leading you? Then three, ask other wise and godly people to weigh in. Like, the Bible says your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can trust it, right? So we don't just trust our own emotions and our own, our own wisdom, but we say, hey, you know what? I feel led to do X. The Bible is silent on the issue. Um, I've prayed about it, and I'm still uncertain. What do you think? Like, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, I feel led to lead in this ministry or do, do this at my work or, or whatever. What do you think? And let other people speak into that. And then finally, make the best decision possible and move forward. Like at some point, we've just got to say, hey, we've searched the scriptures, we've prayed about it, we've, asked, we've sought wisdom. Now we're just going to make a decision and we're going to move forward and trust it and not second guess it. See, God took a group smaller than the group in this room right now and used them to change the course of history. They were able to do it because they got to the point where they finally trusted Jesus. And they were willing to obey him no matter where he sent them or what happened. That, my friends, is how our family started. That is the beginning of our legacy. And what is a legacy but planting seeds in a garden you never get to see? The disciples only saw the beginnings of the growth that the church would become. But now, here 2,000 years later, Christianity is a massive movement that's overtaken the world. But our family's work is not done. Our legacy and our story is still being written and is not complete. See, we are continuing in the vein of what these 12 guys started after Jesus left them. We trust Jesus and we build on the foundation that they laid because like them, we are here to bear witness to the resurrection in Mainville and Lebanon and Mason and to the ends of the earth. The kingdom has been restored. It is being restored, and one day it will be restored. But it won't be called Israel. It'll be a new creation where every tribe, tongue, and nation comes to sing his praise. Our family's mission is to point the world to a crucified and risen Christ. We do that because like the disciples of Acts 1, we trust the guy that raised himself from the dead. And when he says jump, we say how high. Let's pray. Father, we, we are thankful for a family history that reminds us of how this started, how this became, became a thing and began and came to be. And God, as we just look at the beginnings of this chapter, Lord, we know that lots more intense stuff is coming in the book of Acts, but this is a, a chapter that can remind us that they took 12, or, you took 12 ordinary guys, took guys that were just fishermen and tax collectors and, and just, you know, normal people and used them to change the world. And you have allowed us to be a part of that legacy, a part of that family, a part of that revolution and that movement that will change the world forever. And so God, would you help us 
to see Fellowship Baptist Church in 2021, 2022, going to be 50 years old. See us much older. Help us to see ourselves as much older and much bigger than we are. That we are a part of something a lot bigger and a lot older. We are a part of something that is not trendy. We are a part of something that is not a fad. We are a part of something that is not just here for a little while until it goes out of vogue, but we are a part of something that has been around for a really, really long time, and it ain't going anywhere anytime soon. Help us to see that we are a part of something that no law or government or, or, or evil or Satan or anything will ever stop it, that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church that we are a part of a movement and a revolution and the building of a kingdom that will last forever because it is a kingdom that has died and has been raised from the dead. And that this kingdom will only grow. Father, help us to be people who plant seeds knowing they will grow. Help us to be your church would you build your kingdom here amongst your church for now and forever praise things in Christ's name all those people said I'm going to be up here and be people on the sides if you need to pray about anything we will be happy to pray with you we'll stand and sing